0: Greetings fellow time travellers, always lovely to have you with me as we journey through time and space together Because I wouldn't want to make this uh, journey on my own Uh, Before we get started today, as always, need to say a big thanks to the people who've shown their support for this podcast series By signing up to my Patreon.com site It's that support, that financial support from Patreon that makes all of the podcasts possible And makes the love letters free they've always been and always will be free so if you're a member thanks a thousand thanks couldn't do it without you Uh, and if you're not a member and you'd like to be then go to patreon.com find my Neil Oliver site and do the rest sign up part with some cash and become a member and in that way you get access to the weekly podcasts vodcasts um, question and answers uh, competitions and you get access to each other because there's a community on there you can all share ideas we are like minded curious history loving types Okay, that's the advert. Now it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off to the next step on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Humankind has always raised stones as an expression of awe in the face of the invisible. The Karnak stones in France, Silbury Hill and stone circles throughout Britain, the ziggurats of Mesopotamia, the pyramids in Egypt and in Central and South America. At the turn of the first century, new mountains of stone were raised to exalt a new god. Echmayads in Cathedral, the Church of St Sophia, Durham Cathedral, and more. Not until manned flight and rockets to the moon would spirits be invited to soar as high endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil, in the last episode the year was 1086 and we saw an extraordinary document being drawn up that would go on to have profound implications. The people called it the Doomsday Book. Which moment in history are we heading to this week? Morning Paul. Uh, This week's episode is slightly different from normal. Uh, Instead of looking at one specific moment in time, I'm considering a thread that runs all the way through history. The human compulsion to build and to build big. So this week we're spanning the centuries from the Carnac stones in France to the construction of Durham Cathedral as giant mountains of stone are built. We're recording this on Valentine's Day. What a perfect day to be recording Love Letters. <laughs> yes. <coughs> not just, it's not just a time to love your partner <laughs> and love your your mystery, the mystery source of your of your heart spring, um, but it's time to love the world too. So a Love Letter to the world seems completely appropriate on a day such as the 14th of February, 2023. Uh, this, the subject today of the Love Letter, <coughs> all, all attempts at humour aside, uh, at cathedrals, basically... It's the rise of the cathedral. Cathedra is the bishop's seat, the bishop's throne. So a cathedral is a church that houses and is the place for the bishop. Bishop, that's the cathedral. And we take them, obviously we take them for granted because they've, they've been with us for a long, long time. But they were a special idea, Really. Cathedrals were built from the 4th century onwards. The cathedral at Echt in Armenia was built in 301, 301 AD. And we're talking here, you're getting towards 2,000 years ago. The Hagia Sophia, as it's known now, which is the Church of the Divine Wisdom, it was built in Constantinople when there was such a place. But of course, Constantinople was renamed in 1453 Istanbul and so what had been the church of divine wisdom was renamed the hagia sophia it was built between 532 AD and 537 AD if you've ever seen it the very idea that it was done in 5 years is it, it defies description and for a thousand years after it was built the church of divine wisdom was the was the largest cathedral on the planet you know that was achieved in the 6th century it's just I'll never forget it. I I saw that cathedral when I was filming a documentary series about the Vikings, uh, because the Vikings, Swedish Vikings, made it all the way to Constantinople, and they became in part the the special bodyguard of the emperor. The Varangian Guard were the the shock troops, the special SAS, special boat service (laughs) defenders of the emperor. So we were out there as an excuse, really, it's an excuse to go to Istanbul But I can tell you As somebody born in you know, 1967 And still alive in the 21st century I will never forget the impact of it That building is Obviously it's, no, it, it's a long way from being The biggest building on earth now But in some ways it is In some ways it still is The biggest building on earth Because you feel that otherwise Non-existent, transcendental Sense of scale in your heart Or in your soul It's just, there is nowhere bigger somehow. It's an extraordinary thing. Charlemagne, he was crowned Holy Roman Emperor in 800 AD, but he built himself a cathedral at Aachen. He made that his his base of operations, the city of Aachen, not least because there were warm springs there that he liked to swim in. And... You know, so that place pleased him, and he he had a cathedral built there. So the, the the idea of of cathedrals is old. For the better part of the existence of Christianity as a faith, there have been cathedrals. You know, and they are exclusive to the to the Christian faith. You know, other faiths have other grand buildings, temples, mosques, and so on. But the cathedral is a, is an expression of of Christianity and. It has at its heart that, that idea of being visible from afar, hence the, the towers and the spires and steeples that were incorporated into the designs. And it, it's in that way that they dominate, they still dominate the landscape in some respects. You know, you'll be, you'll be on foot through the countryside or you'll be on a train and you look out the windows and you'll see, or well, you see church spires, but also you're suddenly made aware of something looming up behind a forest or behind a hill and it's the top of a spire. And I just, I've always loved them. I remember being taken to York Minster as a little boy, mum and dad, on a day trip to York. And York Minster blew my mind at the time. So stunning, so stunningly beautiful. The stained glass, you know, the that the impact of that is still powerful. You know, for people used to iPhones and screens and cinema and all the rest of it, looking up at light coming through coloured glass and telling a story in images, not in words, mostly, it's still powerful. And I had my mind blown by, by York Minster and some of my favourite places. You know, I've written about how, how much cathedrals mean to me. And you know, St Magnus's at Kirkwall in Orkney is stunning. It's red sandstone, where most cathedrals tend to be pale. They tend to be greyish or blonde stone in the main. And St Magnus's is red sandstone. So when you step in there, when the light's coming through the windows there, the stained glass windows, the whole thing is red. It's like being inside a heart. It's, it's like being inside a, a, a living heart. It has this incredible impact. Mm-hmm. Cathedrals are just another iteration of the raising up of stones that has also been part of our species for, well, thousands of years. It's difficult to tell. Obviously, you go to somewhere like Gobekli Tepe in Turkey which is built during the time when there were only hunters on the planet according to the conventional orthodox chronologies and understandings of the evolution of our society. And yet Gobekli Tepe has great standing stones engraved with animals and and other images on them. It's 10,000 years old 11,000 years old. What's it doing there is the question that you ask of Gobekli Tepe. You know you go to Carnac in Brittany, the great avenues of, of of stones, rough boulders just raised up in long rows that, that disappear out of sight in, in all directions. The stone circles of of Britain, of course, the stones of Stennis and the ring of Brodgar as far north as Orkney, Callanish on Lewis in the Outer Hebrides and then of course the plethora of, of stone circles, Avebury, Stonehenge, all of it. And if you look around the world, that idea of, of raising, of making manifest our desire to raise up, rise up. So you've got the ziggurats that were built in Mesopotamia four or five thousand years ago, pyramids in Egypt, and also there's pyramids in Central and South America. Obviously, they're all products of, of something unique, but they're, they're, there's also something unifying about them. It's that desire to declare that, that something is, is awesome And that therefore we have to kind of raise stones up to express that sense of life or death or God or whatever. It's powerful stuff. It's an expression of awe in the face of the invisible, I would say. You know, that feeling that people have, even now, modern sophisticated people there's an, an, an otherwise inexpressible sense that you get sometimes from, from a feeling or an emotion or being somewhere and, and some people want to express it and kind of capture it and make it real and one of the products you know, great art great literature but cathedrals I would say are just another expression in the outside world of an emotion that comes from deep inside and the cathedrals really that we're all aware of that we think of that punctuate our landscape are really, from the 1000s, you know, the 1080s, 1090s AD, and then into the 12th century, so the 1100s. There was something happened when the clocks turned from 997, 998, 999. You know, it's like watching the numbers turn over on an old odometer in a car. So people knew that a thousand years was coming, Christians knew, and the church. The church, with a capital C, began telling everyone that on his thousandth birthday, Jesus was going to come back to check in, see how we'd all been doing with the Christian message. And the word they were preaching was he was not going to be best pleased. Backsliding sinners left and right, even after all his sacrifice. And so when it turned, when it went from 999 to a 1000, people, the faithful, were scared because they th- this is a this is major. The big man is coming back, and you stand by your beds. It's, he's going to be judging, and then it, that didn't happen. He didn't come back, and but it, it seems almost as though there was a, a kind of an, an, a, a mass exhalation of breath, a kind of a relief. <sighs> okay, we can get on. It's not the end of the world, and and so in that century after. After we turned 1,000, four, four numbers long rather than three, the, the raising of cathedrals fits in there for whatever reason. And you try and trick yourself sometimes into thinking you can understand the motivation of it, but we can no more understand truly the motivations of the cathedral builders and architects than we can try and put ourselves back in the minds of those Neolithic farmers that built stone circles. You can't do it. It's a disrespect, really, for the past to think that we can think like the Neolithic people. We don't live in their world and we don't think with their minds. And likewise, the people whose concept was expressed in the cathedrals, they're beyond our reach, I would say. We have to try and understand them with our own minds and with our own sensibilities. Durham Cathedral keeps coming back into my life. It's strange. I keep being taken there. I've got no connection to Durham. None at all. No family connections, nothing. I didn't go there as a child, really. But in my adult life, I've ended up going there. Television, filming and, and public speaking. I've been in the shadow of Durham Cathedral. And now, I live in Stirling, and every Friday I go, I take the train down to uh, London to to be on GB News. And the train line that I take, the, the LNER, the East Coast line, passes through Durham. So I see Durham Cathedral every Friday. It's just always there. And, and so I, I always kind of use... Durham Cathedral is that, as an exemplar a personal exemplar of what cathedrals are and what they mean Durham's got a great backstory the foundation stones if you like of the of the thing that we see the great cliff of stone that, that looms over the cliffs beside the river Weir in Durham it was 1093 that started and the job was undertaken at the beginning by William of Saint-Calais who was made Bishop of Durham by William the Conqueror in 1080. Uh, so he'd already been bishop for, for a long time and it, was, it wasn't until 1093 that they started work on on what we think of as Durham Cathedral. He also was instrumental, William of Saint Calais, in organising the Doomsday Book, which we talked about last time. So he was clearly an administrator. He was someone that William the Conqueror identified as able to organise a big project. But the, the backstory for Durham's great. The people who, who eventually Created Durham Cathedral as we understand it, their foundational myth, their origin myth is is Lindisfarne, and they come from the monks of Lindisfarne, and it was a it was another shining jewel of Christendom, and then attacked by Vikings. Obviously, that was where we first learned about the existence of Vikings here in this part of the world, allegedly, uh, and eventually there were sustained regular visits by Vikings from Vikings in a bloody way, and so in eight seven five the christian community decided to abandon the island the islet for the last time and so they picked up their stuff including the relics of st Cuthbert they exhumed him they weren't leaving his bones behind for the vikings and so they went a wandering around the north of england and they were completely peripatetic and rootless until 882 ad when they they stopped in chesterley street which is 60 miles south of Lindisfarne, and six miles north of Durham. And then in 995, the, the Vikings came for them again, always for the same reasons, because, you know, anywhere there was a Christian community, there tended to be gold and precious stones wrapped around the Bible and, and whatnot. And so they upped and moved again in 995, and the legend of the Dun Cow, which is to say a beige colored cow, um, the, the monks, wandering again, they followed two milkmaids, who were themselves chasing or looking for a dun coloured cow. And in, in doing that, it was like a, like, a, like a random, let's say, we don't have anywhere to go, we'll just follow them. And they, in, in so doing, they found themselves in a loop of the River Weir, which created almost an island, a bit of a, a peninsula made by a lazy meander of the river. And, well, according to the legend of the dun cow, Cuthbert's coffin could not be moved. It was like the Batmobile in Gotham City, you know, it bolted itself to the ground and can't be moved. It was a bit like that, it wouldn't move and so they said, right, Cuthbert has chosen the location. So from that point on, from the end of the 10th century, there was a significant church in that location. And then constant evolution, other bishops come and go and and then they, they decide to make it bigger and better and in 1093 they embark upon what we have in the form of Durham Cathedral. And William of Saint Calais started the job, but it took until the 1140s. Generations of people working on it before before the thing was completed. Simeon of Durham is a significant historian of that area and that period, and he wrote about William of Saint Calais as being very conscientious in matters divine and worldly business. So, he'd be somebody he'd employ. His CV is good. He's good at getting things done the rock, the stones of, of Durham Cathedral are cut from the cliffs above the river. So there's natural outcrop of that pale stone and the, the, they were, the blocks were cut out and shaped and then lifted up on winches, like simple cranes, up to the ground level. So it has the effect, if you're on the River Weir, it kind of doubles its height, it makes it even more impressive because you've got this natural cliff and then, you know, looming above it is the man-made cliff of, of man-shaped stone. You go into any cathedral, but you go into Durham Cathedral and it just puts you in your place. Scale is about proportion, more than just vastness. So it's the maths, it's the geometry that's applied in there. You know, the, the, the narrow width compared to the great lofty height of it has the effect of making you feel small, which is how you're supposed to feel in the face of the almighty. It's clever theatrics and, and set dressing that creates it. And then, you, of course, you've got the, the stained glass windows, which you have to, again, you can't, you can't put yourself in the minds of those medieval people, but imagine, imagine the impact. These people within whose community, the, the likes of Durham Cathedral, appeared and emerged, they lived their lives in wattle and daub houses, timber rude dwellings, dark so imagine what it was like for people like that from that sort of world to walk inside Durham Cathedral and be bathed in the light coming through those stained glass windows which were themselves telling stories from the Bible these were illiterate people, they were people who couldn't read and they depended upon the the priests to tell them whatever it was that was in the Bible but they could look at these pictures made of light The, the, the light Coming through and and bathing them, colouring their faces and the faces of the people around them. That's you know we get excited about three D cinema. Well, Im- imagine that was that was stories coming at them in in sense around Vista Vision, an amazing experience. Kenneth Clark, who I, I often refer to, you know, he wrote the the book Civilization, and he wrote about the impact of these places. Quote, much of the year was spent in darkness, in very cramped conditions. What must have been the emotional impact of the inconceivable splendour which overwhelmed them when they entered the great monasteries or cathedrals? It's just extraordinary. So that that emergence of those cathedrals on that scale, and everyone was at it at the same time, from the late 1000s into the 1100s, they were all over Europe, all over Britain, these things were rising up into the sky. It was just an amazing event, an amazing manifestation of that civilization, that society's sense of the invisible, sense of the transcendent. And I would say, really, that until until the space age, until rockets were built and fired up into the sky with men aboard them, I don't think until that point spirits were invited to rise so high. When people go to see Karnak or Stonehenge or, or the cathedrals, people always think, how did they move those stones in those days? I mean, they it's yeah. just a practical level. It's extraordinary, isn't it? They all are. That's right. Yes. The same questions are asked. You go to Stonehenge and that's what, that's what most people say. How, how on earth were they able to do this when they didn't have machines, as we understand them? Yeah. And, and what kind of technology did they have? And then you get into the territory of people saying, "Oh, it must have been aliens; must have come down and built it." That's the way. That's how that happens. Because you look at it and think, "How could, how could, you know, rude savages in their animal skins contemplate doing this?" But the fact is, they, you know, they could and they did. Because apart from their circumstances being unimaginably different from our own, they are exactly the same in terms of their cognition. What we forget is that we are much more like them than we deign to concede. All our anxieties, all our stress really comes from our our inability to cope with the modern world we've created around ourselves. We're not designed to eat the things that we eat either. You know, we we domesticated grass 10,000 years ago and a lot more recently for most people in Europe began eating modified grass, which is to say wheat and barley, oats. It's grass. And physiologically, we're not really designed to eat that stuff. We ate the carnivore diet for the first 99% of the species' existence on the Earth. So we've imposed all of this strangeness on ourselves. And the reality is that we are running hunter software. You know, we live in the 21st century world of smartphones and the Internet, but on our hard drives, the ROM in our computers, it's hunter software. It's never been upgraded. It hasn't been upgraded for 300,000 years. We're the same creatures... We are the same, and what we've lost are all the skills that they had. None of us can do anything on a practical level. Well, I say none. That's absolutist. But the vast majority of of us can't do anything. Can't catch our own food. We can't make a fire from scratch. Can't build a shelter. Even those basics we can't do, but they could all do that. And so it's it's a terrible it's a terrible mistake to look at something like Stonehenge or Silbury Hill or Avebury and think. He couldn't have done that. It must have been aliens. That's the mistake. And what you see when you go to somewhere like Karnak, or you go to the, the pyramids in Egypt, and what you have to let yourself accept is, that, is the understanding that people have always aspired to the beyond, to greatness. You know, man's reach must exceed his grasp, or else what's a heaven for? Browning, I think. That's right. We're always reaching... And reaching for space now and reaching for planets beyond and all the rest of it is another manifestation of the same instincts and and desires that you see in the creation of the, the cathedrals. The battle lines are drawn and crusaders sweep into the maelstrom of bloody conflict. The kings of Europe all sallied forth to meet their match in Saladin, Sultan of Egypt and Syria. Butchery, slaughter and inexcusable war crimes on both sides. As the Crusades become uglier and uglier, Saladin's reputation grows as he becomes an icon of chivalry. Next time in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening and to write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorp Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Ink Podcasts production.